Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. A lot of people are asking, hey, what'd you do with your glasses? Craziest thing. Guy was walking on the street. He just grabbed some dirt, spit in it, made a little mud, rubbed it in my eyes. Or I got contacts, you know, is that true? I, I've had them for a while. That's a Bible joke right there. Jesus did that. So I'm got to do a little setup here for us. Um, yeah, that'll work. My wife told me the other day, she goes, you, you know, you have a pair of contacts down in the bathroom. And I was like, oh, I haven't worn them in two years. Let's try this out. Now I know why I don't wear contacts a lot. My eyes itch right now. So uh, we'll, we'll see if we can make it through this. Hey, we are walking through Matthew We are in chapter 24. This is going to start what's called the Olivet Discourse. And so what it means is this is Jesus' last teaching. Uh, Matthew wrote in a very specific way, and he he had five teachings from Jesus through the whole Gospel of Matthew. And so we will see a little bit of action going on at the beginning, and then he did the Sermon on the Mount. Then there's a little bit more action of what happened in his life, and then there's another teaching block. Well, this is the last one. And we know that this is the last week of Jesus' life. And so, is it, oh, 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 it went off, that's why. Technology, not my strong suit. And this TV and me, we don't get along too well. So bear with me one second. And so Jesus, in his last week, is sitting down with his disciples. He's already went through all the woes with the Pharisees, and it wasn't a fun conversation. It wasn't like, oh, hey, this is, this is something I'm thinking about and maybe we should uh, talk about. This was a hard conversation that he just had. I really need this to work or this morning's going to be really, really tough. Ha ha, there we go. Whew, dodged a bullet there. <clears throat> and so he, he gets done with these seven woes with the Pharisees. And these are the religious elite. These are guys that are supposed to be leading all of Israel. And what does it mean to serve and honor the Lord? And Jesus just comes in swinging haymakers, saying really hard things about how you pretty much have missed everything that God has called you to be and to do. Because they've already rejected him and he's their Messiah. And now it's, in a sense, Jesus is telling them, Now you got to live with your consequences. You've made this decision. You've made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. And so Matthew 24, starting just in the, just going to read the first 14 verses. So Jesus, he left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered, said, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations by all nations, for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So Jesus, this is the last time that he's in the temple. And it wasn't that he just walked away when it says he left the temple when it was going away. It wasn't like, hey, you know, the end of the day, got a clock out, go home, you know, see how, you know, the neighbors are doing and the fam and all that. Now, this was a very pointed thing. Because of the religious elite and the Pharisees' response to Jesus and, and the conversation of these seven woes. He says, I'm never walking back in here again. He's never going to have a conversation with them again. Yeah, he's going to be on trial here in a, a few days with his crucifixion and all of that. But he's like, we're, we're not talking anymore. Like, it, it, it's all done. And he's walking away. So very, very pointed, very strong language in the original there. And if you look, at the very end of 23, he's saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And he says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're not going to see me again. This is it. This is your last chance. We've already had this conversation. We're done. This is, there's no more. And he walks away. And through it all, the, the disciples kind of come up to him, and they're like, well, what about the temple? Like, you, you said all these things about the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and okay, we get it, they're corrupt, they're not great people, but, but what about the temple? The temple's beautiful, and it was. But what about that? Like, there's got to be at least something good here, right? And then Jesus responds, you see all these? Do you not? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Some of the most beautiful places on earth, like really nice vacation spots, are some of the most places that have the most evil in them. You know, like um, the, the big event that just happened in our culture uh, with the Super Bowl. Super Bowl, what a great thing. Just two really good teams, you know, paying $90 for a thing of nachos. Who knows what the ticket costs are? But the Super Bowl is also one of the main events where sex trafficking happens. It's massive. Have this beautiful stadium. They got the show that they've been planning forever. And then at the same time, a great evil that's going on. So some of the most beautiful places on our earth also have some great amount of wickedness and evil. And it's almost like Jesus is saying the same thing with the temple. Yeah, it's beautiful. But there's a depth of evil here. Because the Pharisees have absolutely rejected everything that God intended them to be and to do. And he says, the stones, they're not even going to be one on top of another. They're all going to be thrown down. And if we fast forward to 70 AD, a guy named Titus, who was just a Roman general at the time. His dad was the emperor, and he would later become the emperor of Rome. He was the one that was leading the Roman soldiers 
when they destroyed Jerusalem. And some, some say that he wanted to keep the temple just because of how beautiful it was, but then there was a drunken soldier that lit it on fire. And we've got to remember the temple was just all kinds of gold everywhere. And if you light gold on fire, if you heat gold up, it starts melting. And the gold in the ceiling is dripping in between the cracks of the stones. And so Titus had his soldiers tear the temple apart stone by stone to retrieve the gold that was in between them. So this isn't just a thing of like, oh, you know, just wear and tear on a house. You know, if you don't upkeep it, it's going to wear down. No, no, no. There's going to be an intentional tearing down of the temple stone by stone. And it's 40 years later from what Jesus is saying here that he's telling even this quick prophecy that that temple that you're just so, you know, focused on, yeah, it's going to be torn apart stone by stone. And they didn't even have to wait long to see that happening. If there was any of those disciples that maybe were around or saw that from a distance thinking this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. I always think it's kind of interesting when you can read historical events in our world and they line up perfectly with Scripture because this is real history with real people, with real events. And so this temple torn down the center of all of Jewish culture. I mean, like, it, it, they would rather not have a home as long as they still had the temple. This was the center of everything and who they were. It's one of my biggest defenses when I talk about the New Testament because all of them except Luke were Jewish. And not one writer talks about the temple being destroyed. And so was most of the New Testament written before 70 AD? I think it was. Because that would have been a great defense of Christianity. You don't have to go to the temple to worship anymore. Faith isn't in a floor plan anymore. It's in a person. It's in the person of Jesus. And they could easily have said, look, our, our fathers and forefathers went to the temple for a thousand years. But the temple doesn't even stand anymore. Remember Titus? He tore it up. That's why I think the New Testament was written very early because it hadn't happened yet which is another just great uh, defense for our faith to say that the actual events and the recording of them, the, the time gap in that is so short. It is very impressive compared to any other ancient manuscripts. I need to geek out on some other stuff, so I need to slow my roll there. So, so as Jesus, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's where we get the Olivet Discourse, and this is a very specific mountain. This is the same mountain that he's going to call his disciples here uh, and say, hey, after the resurrection, he's going to appear to them, you know, for over a period of 40 days. And he's going to tell them, hey, meet up with me at the Mount of Olives. And that's, this is the very mountain that he ascends into heaven from, where the disciples are standing around and they're looking up into the, if you read the first part of Acts, you'll hear that story. This is that mountain. This is the same mountain that when he returns at his second coming, that his foot's going to step on and split into two. We see that in the Old Testament. So this mountain is a very specific thing, and so he's sitting there, and listen to the questions. Now, some theologians want to say, did the disciples ask two questions? Did they ask three questions? But listen to what they said. Tell us, because he's talking about how the temple's going to be destroyed. He says, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
So I think he asked, they asked three. They probably didn't even know. They're probably wrapping all of that up together, that, that Jesus coming back at the second kingdom and, and setting up his kingdom, the temple being destroyed. Like They, they probably were thinking this is all going to happen at the same time. And Jesus doesn't answer the first one here. You actually need to go to Luke for it. But I think he answers the last two in his response. And he says, so tell us, when will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of the age? And that's kind of a, a unique phrasing that the, they used. And what they would say is like present day, that's the present age. And they were just waiting for the Messiah to come to set up the kingdom to lead them to you know, political, economic, all of that, you know, uh, even in their religious, to have that freedom to be their own nation. And that would be the age to come. So like, when is this all going to happen? When's that end of the age and you're going to come and set all this up? It's a valid question. Because if the temple's going to be destroyed, well, what's that mean? There's going to be something greater, greater than the temple that's going to show up. But we have to understand, it's a Jewish conversation that Jesus is having. And you read later in Matthew 24, and you'll see even more specifics about that. So this is a very Jewish thing that's going on. And I'm being very specific about that. And because for me, and I'm going to try to defend this scripturally, Matthew 24 does not apply to us as the church. Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking, he's talking about the tribulation. So just a little uh, history. Remember this... Uh, Remember this slide I used a long time ago? So here we are, nice little blue marker point. Yep, we are in the church. Welcome. We're in the church, right? And so uh, for us, what we are waiting for is the rapture. Uh, obviously, that word is not in the uh, original language. Some people say that. Well, the rapture doesn't, isn't going to happen because it's not in the Bible. True, because it's a Latin word. But in uh, scriptures, it talks about the church being caught up. That's where we get that word from. And so the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. So if you live ne next to a cemetery, you can just always look out there in the mornings. and like, okay, we're still good. Okay, some of the graves are empty. Okay, here we go, you know. And so we are waiting for the rapture. That's what we're waiting for. Uh, I do not believe, and we'll talk about it, that the church is going to go through the tribulation. So once the church is raptured, that we're going to meet Christ, um, then everybody else is going to go through the tribulation. Speaking of Israel and all the Jews, they're going to go through this seven-year period. And then there's going to be the second coming. So we meet Christ in the air, and we will come back with him, and then he sets up his kingdom. Satan is bound for that thousand years, then loosed, great white throne judgment, and then new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing, right? So we actually need to go back in time just a little bit um, because Jesus, so we're here, right? Here. Sorry, some of you guys are looking over the, just so you can see it well. So we're here, but Matthew 24 is recording Jesus here. Jesus lived in the Old Covenant. Jesus was an Old Testament dude. He lived under that Old Covenant. Even when he healed people, he said, hey, go and do what is right according to the Mosaic Law. He even said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So he lived under this old, you know, my nice little stone tablets in that nice there. Graphic design at its finest right here. They really didn't cover that in seminary, but... And so Jesus is here, Matthew 24, before the cross, right? He's speaking his last week. And we know that the church starts, here's the nice Calvary Chapel dove, if you remember that, some of you, any old time Calvary Chapel dudes with me? And so the church starts at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells every believer in Acts 2. 
The Holy Spirit comes and indwells the, the disciples and those that were up in the upper room, and they start speaking in tongues, which, just to clarify, they spoke in a known language. It wasn't an unknown language. People from, because you got to think, all these Jews came in from all over parts of the world, and they all spoke different languages, but they said, they're speaking in my language. So it's like if somebody walked in here uh, that maybe grew up in Germany, let it be uh, the Naps, they have a, a family member grew up in Germany and speaks German. And if all of a sudden I started speaking German, it's like, hey, he's speaking my language. That's what happened in Acts 2. So it wasn't a, a babbling when we think of tongues. It was known languages. But that started the church. And then that's the rest of the slide there. So, so this is where Jesus is speaking. Why this is important? Because we need to zoom in. I told you we're going to geek out. Okay? So we need to zoom in a little bit. And this is the part where we really have to understand. So Jesus is here speaking. And he's going to go to the cross. And we know from Daniel that it said that he's going to be rejected and cut off. When Israel rejects the Messiah and the fullness comes to the cross, that's the paradox of the cross. Is at the cross, that is like the final straw of Israel rejecting their Messiah because they killed him. But at the same time, for us that are in the church with our faith in Jesus, that's where our hope is in, right? And so because of that, God puts Israel on hold, and he starts the church. He starts again with Pentecost, and we know the church is going to end at rapture. So we're on a time limit right now, and the clock is ticking for us to be and to do what God, what Jesus has called us to do. But he puts Israel on hold for this time period. And he is working through the church. So that's why it's in white, those are in black. So this is where God is working now is in the church. Now at rapture, that's when Antichrist will be revealed. That'll start the seven years of tribulation. And then God will go back to working with Israel. So the church and Israel are two separate programs. And they have two separate promises with them. And we can look in the Old Testament and see some of the things that Israel is promised that is not going to be fulfilled in the church. So these are two separate programs. And I know that could be a struggle sometimes, but it's not like God's a single parent and can't handle a couple of kids. He even has other people. Like you can read in the Old Testament where he handles even other nations. That's why he had the prophet Jonah. He went to the Assyrians. So it's, it's just that the Israel and the church is the most written about in Scripture, but there's even other nations, Edom that God is working and moving through. He's even working in other beings outside of humans. God has a plan and a purpose for angels, does he not? And so I think our God is big enough to handle the church. He can handle Israel. He can handle angels. He can handle the fallen angels. And so these two are separate. So right now we're just waiting on the rapture. And then once we're raptured, caught up with Christ, tribulation starts. And so what do we do for seven years? Hanging out with Jesus, hanging out in heaven. And then at the second coming, we'll return with him, okay? And this is, oh, where's my phone? There it goes. And this is key because in Matthew 24, where Jesus is speaking from, he's speaking of the tribulation. Because the church is a mystery, if we're in the timeline of Matthew right now, the church is a mystery. This hasn't been revealed yet. Only Matthew only is the only gospel that mentions the church, and it's only twice, and it's very kind of obscure, the disciples wouldn't have known what he was talking about. They would have heard, yeah, Ecclesia, what are you talking about? This is a mystery that hasn't been revealed yet. And so he's having a Jewish conversation because Israel will go through the tribulation, but I do not believe that the church will. 
And that's key because, now are we going to have trials and persecution? Are we going to have pain and suffering? Absolutely. Because we are at war with a very real enemy that only wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But the tribulation is God's wrath and judgment being poured out. The tribulation is for those that are at war with God. How can we be saved by grace through faith and be at war with God at the same time? We can't. Or 1 John doesn't make sense because he says Christ is our propitiation. Fancy word. You just got baptized right there if you were Methodist. Sorry. <laughs> hey, we'll do any kind of baptism service. Whatever denomination you come from. No, tease him. If Christ is our propitiation, that means that he suffered God's wrath for us. So if Christ suffered the wrath of God for us on the cross, how could he pour out his wrath on the church again? That's double jeopardy. Now, now we're attacking the character of God that he's unjust. And so I do not believe that the church will go through tribulation. I do not believe it is for us. We are not destined for that. Why? Because we're not at war with God if we have faith in Christ. We've been reconciled as Paul would say. And so the church is a mystery. So Jesus here in Matthew 24 is talking about the tribulation in the second coming. He's not talking about the church and rapture. Now, I do want to defend those two points. And this is all scriptural. This isn't according to Nick. This is according to the word. So the rapture, it, it's Jesus coming for his own. The second coming is Jesus comes with his own. As the church, we will be with Jesus when he comes at the second advent, his second coming, right? So believers, with the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. But at the second coming, we return with the Lord to the earth. We got two different locations. They can't be the same events. And then you, this is going to happen before tribulation because, again, we're not going to go through it. That would be against the character of God and his word. Second coming happens after tribulation, the believers were taken from the earth as an act of deliverance. Get me out of here. Beam me up, Scotty. I don't have to deal with death and pain and suffering anymore. I want to be with the Lord. But unbelievers are going to be removed from the earth as an act of judgments. It's kind of like when I got pulled out of class by the principal. Like, you can't stay here with all the good kids. We've got to pull you out because you're being a rotten kid. Yeah, that was judgment right there. It'll be, the rapture is going to be an instantaneous hidden thing. Not everybody's going to know about it. But everybody's going to see Christ when he returns. Keep going. It's going to happen at any moment. The rapture could happen before I'm done teaching about the rapture. Are you ready? The second coming won't happen until certain events take place. Again, that's why I believe Matthew 24 does not talk about the rapture. And it doesn't apply to us. Because we're not waiting for certain events to happen. And we'll get into that a little bit. The rapture, no mentioning in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's for the church. But the second coming, absolutely predicted, often in the Old Testament. In the rapture, there's no reference to Satan, but at the second coming, we know Satan is bound. And then lastly, rapture will start tribulation, but the second coming starts the millennial kingdom. And so going back to our timeline, Jesus is speaking of the tribulation here. And this is going to be key because, again, I'm going to end this way, but I'll go ahead and say it now. I don't want this scripture to apply to your life because if it, if it does, that means we missed Jesus. And so he's talking about tribulation. He says, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name. 
I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and of rumors of wars. And I'm going to push back. There's some really good Bible teachers out there that are quoting Matthew 24 because of everything that's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Like, ooh, look at the signs of the times. Things are falling into place. And here it is. Get ready because the Lord's coming back. Again, we're not waiting for anything to fall into place. He's talking about a different time. And it's hard. It's only a seven-year difference. So they're both in times. They're both going to be similar. But he's talking about tribulation here, not about us. And so he says, a lot of people are going to come and say, I am the Christ. And you can only counterfeit what is real. Right? Like if I just woke up one day and said, you know what? I want to counterfeit a $75 bill. Like, man, you are more stupid than what you look. Because a $75 bill does not exist. You can't counterfeit it. Now walk into a bank with a 75 and see what they do. No, seriously, let me know, okay? No. <laughs> you can't counterfeit unless it is real. So Christ saying, hey, I'm coming back. Then Satan has an opportunity to counterfeit something. And if you look at the timeline, when is the Antichrist, who is the ultimate counterfeit, when does he show up? Before the second coming. Because you can't counterfeit it on the back end of it. You have to counterfeit it on the front end. A lot of people will be looking for Jesus, but they'll find hope in the Antichrist. I think Israel will find hope in the Antichrist. And that's why in tribulation, we have that one that's talked about at the three and a half year mark, they're going to sign a covenant with the Antichrist that they can rebuild the temple, their precious temple. And they're going to start sacrifices again. But at that three and a half year mark, he's going to cancel all that out. And it's literally going to be hell on earth. Even, even kind of numbers, you know, some people talk about, oh, number 666, the mark of the beast, and the number of the beast, and seven's the completion. Well, six does come before seven. The Antichrist is going to come before Christ. But I'm not worried about that. So when people start saying, oh, this person, could they be the Antichrist? Maybe. I, I think Satan's always got a man on the stage ready because he doesn't know. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know when rapture is going to happen. So he, I think he always has a man ready that he will indwell. Just think like how Christ took on Jesus, took on flesh to be the God-man. I think they, the exact same thing, but completely opposite, the most unholy where Satan will take on flesh and indwell a person to be Antichrist. He's going to be a person just like me and you, just like Jesus was in the flesh. This is going to be Satan in the flesh. And so I think he always has a man on the stage ready to go, you know, because I could imagine living, you know, in the 30s with World War II thinking, oh, that guy had to be Antichrist. Well, here we are. And so don't be shaken. Don't, don't be, as Jesus says, don't be led astray in this. Understand what's going on. In verses 6 and 7, he starts talking about, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be shaken by that. Those are going to naturally happen. But he's talking about even in the tribulation. They're going to be talking about this stuff. And war and famine, they go together. In end of verse uh, 7, you see where there's going to be increased this death because of famines and earthquakes and even just the natural disasters are going to increase. And then you just see this massive chaos Many are going to fall away, betray one another. They're going to hate one another. False prophets are going to ride, lead many astray. There's going to be a lawlessness. There's going to be a love that just grows cold. But verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. If you apply that to the church, if you apply that now, that would say your endurance 
through persecution is what saves you. That makes salvation by works, not salvation by faith, by grace through faith. So he's not talking about the church because we're saved by grace, not by our endurance to endure. He's talking about those that are going to live through the tribulation. A couple things to look at. Uh, turn to Romans 11. So who is he talking about? Who is Jesus talking about when he says, you know, at the very end of 23, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And who's he talking about? About the one that endures, he will be saved. The endure to the end. So Romans 11 is Paul talking about what is God's plan for Israel. And he says, uh, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Again, nothing mystical, mystery just meaning it's not yet revealed fully. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So the Israel, the Jew, who lives through the tribulation, which will be very, very horrible, very hard, if he makes it to the end of tribulation and he sees Christ coming, that's when they will repent. That's, that will be their acceptance, what they should have done here, way over here. That, that'll be their response then. I think the fun question is going to be like, hey, who's, who are all those people behind you there, Jesus? Who's all that riding with you? Oh, that was the church who saw me for who I really was. I missed a slide. Hold on. Here we go. Going back. And so, again, talking about we're seeing uh, Antichrist. We are seeing wars, rumors of wars. We're seeing uh, nations rising against. We have famines. We have earthquakes, various things. That are, these are just the birth pains. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 4 and 5 are the last times that we have any reference to the church. And then in Revelation 6 is what starts the tribulation. And I want to read, and we have this, again, I geek out and I just make these because I have nothing else going on. So this is the seven seals. This is what starts tribulation. This is John writing. He says, Now I watched the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. So Revelation 6, verse 2. And look, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering to conquer. That's the Antichrist that parallels perfectly to Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. Verse 3. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and came out another horse, a bright red, and it was permitted to him to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Wars and rumors of wars. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse and on its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Meaning food, the cost of food is going to be really high and food is going to be scarce so that there's going to be famine, which matches with Matthew 24. 
And verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of, a, of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast. And when I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altars those who had been slain for the word of God, for their witness they had born. And so we even see the martyrs in verse 9, and it's following with verse 9 to 11. And then lastly, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When they were with each other, given a white robe and to hold to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And they opened up the sixth seal. And I looked and behold, a great earthquake. The sun became black, a sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, stars fell, fig trees shed its fruit, mass chaos. So as we read in Revelation, what is the tribulation? What is that going to look like? It perfectly matches up to what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24. And he's telling you, I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be led astray. I don't want you to be confounded by this, like hold fast, understand what's going to happen here. And even if you go further, and if you look at Revelation 7, that's where you get the 144,000 that are sealed. These are going to be Jewish evangelists that are going to preach during the tribulation. Yes, people in the tribulation will be able to be saved. It would be very difficult. And if you look at the very last verse that we read, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. So again, like I said, this Sunday, I don't want any of Matthew 24 to apply to your life because if it does, that means we missed Jesus. We are not destined for this as believers whatsoever. We're not waiting for anything to happen in our world. We don't need to be looking at signs and wonders and listening to those that are talking about signs and wonders. The only thing that we need to listen to is the voice of Jesus. Say, go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded. That's the only thing that we need to keep our eyes focused on. But if we're going to look for things that are happening, we're going to look at wars that are happening around our world, thinking that Jesus is getting close, we're absolutely in the end times. The moment that Jesus ascended to heaven and said, hey, I'm coming back soon, that began the end times. We're always one more day closer to it. But we don't need to hunker down and buy ammo and food. We don't need to build a bomb shelter like that movie Blast from the Past, if you've seen that. We don't need to be getting scared and worried and, and watching the news thinking, okay, what does this mean? No. We look at our lost, broken world and know that we as the church are called to bring the gospel to people that do not have a saving relationship with Jesus. We're given biblical prophecy, end times prophecy, as a comfort and a hope. That right now, the only thing I'm waiting on is Jesus. And, he, and I'm going to push a little bit. Uh, some old Calvary Chapel dudes say this a lot. Oh, if the Lord tarries, the Lord is not going to be late. He's not tarrying. 
He's not like, hey, I got an appointment at 10. Darn, I'm going to miss it. I got to tarry. No, no, no. When Jesus calls us in the rapture, he's going to be perfectly right on time. He's not going to have to look at the Father and say, sorry, I missed that. Traffic was crazy. Have you ever tried to ride a white horse? You know, no. No. He's going to be perfectly on time. And so we're given end times prophecy like this, not to be scared, but to have comfort and hope that we're not going to have to live through this, but also we're given that so that we can warn and encourage and to urge those around us the truth of who God is and the truth of what he is doing in human history and on the landscape of human history so that we can show, hey, when we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about what you're saved from, but also what you're saved to. That as the church, we're not destined for this. And so the, the mission still stands the same, to love God, love others, and impact this world. And I'll just, when people start bringing up signs of the times, when pastors start taking some of this and think, this is it, and we need to get ready, even our Calvary Chapel movement is not immune to that. Even the leader that started this whole thing made a prediction of when he thought Christ was going to return. And many people fell away from the Calvary Chapel movement because of it. Here's the problem. They looked at him like he was infallible. But he's a fallible human being. And that's the one thing I wish he wouldn't have wrote about. Wish he would have just kept that to himself. But they had a big party thinking that it was going to happen because it was the 80s. And there was Russia stirring it up again. And here we are again, Russia stirring it up again. My hope is in Christ. I don't need to look at what's going on in the world. I don't need to look for the Antichrist. I need to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. We don't need to put our hope in, don't put your hope in me. Have you, have you not heard some of the things I say on a Sunday morning? Don't put your hope in me. Don't put your hope in another Bible teacher. You, this, full of the Holy Spirit, pray to him. Say, Lord, open my heart. Reveal to me the truth of this. That's where our eyes need to be focused. Not on the signs and the things that are going around, but we're called to a mission. And I think sometimes I might be the only one. Do you remember like when your parents would leave and they'd give you a list of things to do? They said, hey, we want to see all these things done before I come home. I knew what time my mom got home from work. And I was really good about doing all my chores in that last half hour before she walked in. Until those days came when she got off early. And I was vegged out in front of the TV, just relaxing, acting like I wasn't called to do anything. She'd come home, did I not command you? <laughs> oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. And my choices had consequences. But I think sometimes we, we sit back as the church and we think, oh, that's not going to happen. That's far off. We can just coast. We can just relax a little bit. No. Every day is another day closer that we need to press in that we need to be the 
hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus, that we want people to experience the love of Christ. It's not a time for us to step back and to take it easy, but it's a time for us to press in even more. And what's hard is we have to understand, we as the church are not meant for this. And if this hurts, I'm sorry, but I love you. Just because you come to church doesn't mean that you're a part of the church. As a former youth pastor, you know where I saw the most teenagers get saved? Bible college. Great kids that grew up in the church. Part of youth group, had good families, had good pastors, and they get to Bible college and they never understood the gospel. They didn't understand a relationship with Christ. They didn't understand grace. They were living their life with this Christian morality, but not a saving faith. And so I love that you attend. I think it's good. We should fellowship together. But we don't take attendance, if you haven't noticed. I'm not walking around saying, all right, Lee Cribs here, Buff Chris here, Noah here. No, no. We love that you guys are here. But do you have a relationship with Jesus? Because sitting here does not make you a Christian. And they have all those little cute sayings, just like sitting at McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger, sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car. And it's true. Because a lot of times we put our faith in our morality. We put our faith in our, our actions of what we do and say, oh, of course I'm saved. But we're nowhere near having a walk with Christ. We're like the Pharisees. Decent morality, a lot of religious activities, but they had no idea who God was and what he was doing. And that's where Satan would love to lead us astray. Let's get more worried about what we think is going to come instead of being focused. Because if we're more focused on end times, we're not focused on the mission that Christ has for us. But first, it starts here. We can't give what we don't have. I can't lead somebody to the Lord and, and show them what a, and disciple them in what a relationship with Christ is if I don't have one. So when we're looking at these, I absolutely want you to avoid this. But everybody that rejects Christ will go through that. And if you study Revelation and you look at it, half the world's population will be killed through tribulation in the first three and a half years, the peaceful years. And then it's hell on earth. We have the opportunity, and I would say we have the obligation as the church to be a voice of hope, to be a voice of love and of truth. Because just as Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. That's our call. The people that are walking, being led astray, looking for purpose and identity and all kinds of stuff in this world. No, we get to call them home to be with Christ. And so again, I think it's time for the church to step up, step out, and to step into people's lives. It's not about a holy huddle. Yes, this is good. This is home base. This is where you get uh, bandaged up. This is where you get encouraged. This is where you get ammo. This is where you get strength. The mission starts when you leave here. The mission doesn't happen here. The mission is when you get in your car and you drive off. What, that's, we, I would love to get a big old sign. Welcome to the mission field when you leave the church. 
That's what we're called to do. Keep your eyes focused on him. Keep your eyes focused on the mission that he has for us. And if anything tries to come in between that, it should send off some red flags. It should have some warning to you that there is something that is trying to distract me from who Christ is and what he's called us to do. So Father, we love you, we trust you, and we trust in your plan. And I pray that we would keep our eyes focused on you and the mission that you have for us. That we would not be led astray. But knowing that you have called us to be your hands and your feet and your heart. And I pray now more than ever that the church, not just Calvary Lake Ozark, Lord, but your bride, now more than ever, will fulfill that purpose. So give us opportunities, Lord, to be a voice of hope, to warn, to encourage those around us of who you are, what you have done for us, and what you will be doing on the landscape of human history. I pray, Lord, that if you give us days, weeks, months, years of ministry, that we would be a useful vessel in your hands. So we surrender to you our lives again, that it is not about us. It is all about you. Give us that kind of faith to boldly and courageously follow you with our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.